It's September 18th, 2006, and you're listening to the NACOcast, coming to you from Canada's National Arts Centre in Ottawa. The National Arts Centre Orchestra's fall season gets underway with two programs devoted to Mozart and Brahms. Our first subscription concerts on September 20th and 21st feature arias from The Magic Flute, The Marriage of Figaro, Don Giovanni, featuring the elegant Canadian baritone Gerard Finley, and in the second half, the D minor piano concerto of Johannes Brahms, played by that titan of modern pianists, Yefim Bronfman. The following week, on September 27th and 28th, we perform the Marriage of Figaro Overture, the G Major Piano Concerto of Mozart, and Brahms' Second Symphony. I must confess, I'm somewhat relieved to be speaking of anything other than Richard Wagner this week. As all of you Canadians know, our national classical music consciousness has been entirely devoted lately to the first Canadian performance of the Complete Ring Cycle, which began last week in Toronto. It's been a wonderful indulgence for the legions of Wagnerites, and a moment of great pride for Richard Bradshaw and the Canadian Opera Company, who have fought so hard to fulfill the dream of building a true opera house here in Canada. Wagner is not a frequent guest at the National Arts Centre, where our smaller orchestra specialises in the more classically proportioned repertoire. In truth, Wagner remains a bit of a stranger to many symphony orchestras. With the exception of the frequently performed overtures to Die Meistersinger, Lohengrin, or perhaps Rienzi, and the occasional Siegfried Idol, or the appearance of a big-voiced Wagnerian soprano and tenor teasing us with the odd scene, Wagner's major achievements must, of course, remain in the opera houses. Wagner did write a symphony. It's a student work from 1832. I've only played this once, uh, perhaps 30 years ago, and I must say I hope never to play it again. Composers like Brahms and Ravel were more careful to destroy their immature works and have left us with only the best of their lives' work. Mozart and Bach, of course, seemed incapable of writing anything less than divine, so we can excuse them. Well, anyway, Wagner did indeed stand like a colossus over European music in the latter half of the 19th century, but his stature was to some degree rivaled by Brahms. Well, there were two camps. Even then, not everyone was enamored of Wagner. Of course, Brahms wrote no operas, and Wagner, apart from that youthful symphonic indiscretion, wrote no other symphonies. He was too busy reinventing opera as a profound integration of music and drama. Brahms, like Schubert and Mendelssohn before him, kept busy writing all sorts of music, but above all, he was trying to dig himself out of the deep footprints of Beethoven and those nine monumental symphonies. 
As early as 1853, Schumann, who was as influential a critic as he was a composer, predicted that the 25-year-old Brahms would be Beethoven's successor as the next great symphonist. Uh, This glowing remark would weigh rather heavily on the shoulders of young Brahms. The first symphony would actually take 15 years to complete. The D minor piano concerto very nearly became that first symphony. This first of his two piano concerti was first conceived as a two-piano sonata, but it gradually assumed a larger scope and was soon developing into a D minor symphony, complete with sketches for four complete movements. Now, I should remind you that Beethoven's final symphony was also in D minor, and Brahms must have struggled terribly with the expectations that would follow. Eventually, the whole project evolved into a symphonic kind of work with a piano solo. He kept most of the structure of the first movement, which finally emerged as a gigantic 20-minute exploration of sonata form, in which the piano and the orchestra worked together to present and develop profound musical ideas. This is not the grand romantic concerto that might have been expected from this period, where the orchestra plays a subservient role and the soloist dazzles with all the main material. No, Brahms' concerto is a much more cohesive team effort, if you will. Let's take a moment to put this world of D minor into context. Just to remind you, here are the opening measures of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. You can hear how Beethoven delays the arrival of the D minor tonality, creating an air of uncertainty and expectation, which quickly coalesces into a complex and forceful first subject. Brahms tackles the D minor challenge with immediate courage. His concerto opens with a maestoso first movement that wastes no time in firmly establishing that D minor landscape before introducing his powerful first subject in the second bar. Notice how quickly Brahms' theme deviates from the D minor scale, arriving forcefully on an A-flat. The resulting tritone against the pedal D is quite jarring emotionally. Sounds like a real internal struggle, doesn't it? And surely, that's what it represents. 
Brahms struggling to write a concerto of symphonic dimensions, struggling to find a compositional voice independent of Beethoven's and Schumann's, struggling to find a form that he can flesh out. Well, it's well over 90 measures of orchestra before the piano is finally heard. And then what do we hear? The soloist taking his own stab at that forceful first theme? Well, no. A remarkable thing occurs. The pianist steps only gently into the mix with a wonderfully restrained and lyrical subject harmonized in thirds and sixths. Robert Schumann was a great mentor to Brahms, and he and his pianist wife Clara were great proponents of the younger man's genius. But in actual fact, the relationship with Robert was not all that long-lasting, as Schumann's mental illness began to overwhelm, culminating in a failed attempt at suicide in 1854, a rapid decline and finally death in an asylum in 1856. These tragic years of Schumann's demise coincided with the birth of the D minor Concerto, and both the dramatic struggles of the opening maestoso and the ethereal and spacious calm of the second movement adagio reflect Brahms' preoccupation with both of the Schumanns. Brahms wrote in the score of the adagio, Benedictus qui venit in nomine domini, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which seems to constitute some evidence that this adagio was conceived as a requiem for Schumann. Of course, it can also be argued that Brahms' lifelong love and devotion for Clara is the central motivation. In any case, the adagio, in a rather slow 6-4, begins with a tender theme in the violins and violas. Listen to how the extended legato countermelody in the two bassoons, which offers a gentle cushion for that Benedictus theme. It's D major, of course, so it's already inclined towards a rather beatific atmosphere. Indeed, as we'll see in a few minutes, D major was the key that Brahms chose for the second symphony, which is his pastoral symphony in a sense. D is also the tonality of his incommensurably gorgeous violin concerto. In any case, when the piano enters, it begins a long and rather existential meditation, which I find to be quite lonely. Of course, we can always construct programmatic arguments about great music, 
Is the piano here representing a lonely Brahms, lamenting the loss of his mentor Robert, or a lonely and heartsick Brahms consumed with his adoration for that unattainable Clara? Well, you can read whatever you wish into the moment. Much depends on the performance. On speaking of the performance, Yefim Bronfman is certainly one of the greats of our time. I first met him when he was 18 years old, and we were living together in the same house at the fabled Marlborough Music Festival. Fima, as he's known to his friends, was focused and self-possessed even at that age, and with the passing years, he's grown in stature and in authority. He was one of those soloists who is liked and respected by all of the orchestral musicians around here, always arriving with a self-deprecating good humor and consistently superb in his music-making. I think the thing that distinguishes Yefim Bronfman is the quality of sound he draws out of the keyboard. You know, it's a never-ending source of interest to me how different pianists can somehow produce such different basic sounds on the same darn piano. Those of us who work in orchestras hear the same piano week after week, and yet these instruments seem to be the equivalent of 88-key chameleons, changing color according to the techniques and temperaments of each guest pianist. Vladimir Horowitz once said, Everyone can play a note on the piano as beautifully as me. It's the next note that's the problem. Of course, he makes a good point. It's how a pianist handles the relationship of one note to another that defines most of his or her artistry. Yet, even beyond that, the actual sound of that one note depends on the velocity with which the key is struck and the way in which the pianist distributes his weight and his muscle energy. Brahms' piano works are probably the ultimate vehicle for assessing sound, Undoubtedly stemming from the fact that Brahms was himself a virtuoso on the order of Liszt, but with an arguably deeper soul. In my own life in the orchestra, I've performed this same D minor concerto with dozens of pianists. My early years were blessed by several repeat performances with the great Claudio Arau, whose nobility of sound and spacious phrasing rather spoiled the piece for me. But Bronfman is certainly at this level, so we're all in for a treat. By the way, the other inhabitants of that previously mentioned guest house at Marlborough Festival that summer included the members of the newly formed Emerson Quartet and a teenage cellist by the name of Yo-Yo Ma, who seems to have done pretty well in his career. Well, I've digressed a bit, and I do want to touch on the subject of the third movement of the D minor concerto. It is a rondo, marked allegro non troppo, not too fast. The rondo is, of course, a very specific compositional form. It's always structured in some kind of an A, B, A, C, A, D, A form. Let me explain. It means we have an A theme of a uniform length, followed by a B theme, sometimes called an episode, which offers a new idea of some contrast, and followed by a recognizable restatement of the initial A theme. And then followed by a new episode, we'll call it C, of yet another character, and a return to the A theme, and well, and so on. Rondos are great fun to listen to, I think because it's easy to keep track of the structure of the movement, and therefore we can really stay tuned to the consciousness of the composer. Well then, here's the A theme of Brahms' Rondo, and as you can hear, it's built on a syncopated rhythm in 2-4, which we hear immediately.
Among the several episodes in this rondo is a good old fugue. It starts in the second violins, and it's always a dangerous spot for intonation and ensemble. More than one sarcastic lyric has been written to accompany this awkward passage. By the way, you'll always know how well this is going by the attitude of the conductor. If there's the slightest problem, the maestro will practically jump into the lapse of the first stand seconds, trying to control the situation. Concerto concludes with a buoyant conversion back to D major. As we'll hear in a minute, there's nothing quite as life-affirming as works ending in D major. Well, here are just a few fabulous examples. Handel's Hallelujah Chorus, the closing pages of Mozart's opera The Marriage of Figaro, Beethoven's Second Symphony, Mahler's First Symphony, Prokofiev's Classical Symphony, and of course, Brahms' Second Symphony. And what an ending it is. It's the conclusion of a very sunny and very joyous composition. If the D minor piano concerto is something of a proto-symphony, the second symphony is Brahms, the mature and confident symphonist, and every bit the equal of Beethoven's sixth, which I think it most resembles in attitude. Brahms struggled with his first symphony from 1861 to 1876, but the second came very quickly, in the summer of 1877, and the final revisions were finished by the end of the year. Brahms had rented a guest house at Lake Wurt in Austria, and his daily regime was perfect for the creation of a work that's so sunny and optimistic. Early morning swims, walks by the lake, good food, uninterrupted mornings, and a little house open to the mountains with a good piano. 
Brahms remarked about this time, melodies are flying so fast that you need to watch that you don't step on any of them. He might have been knee-deep in tunes, but what I find most fascinating here is how so much develops from only three simple notes in the very first measure of the opening Allegro non troppo. Those three notes, D, C-sharp, and D. And that simple motive soon expands to a long and lyrical subject. By the way, what pastoral evocations could we have without reference to horn calls in the mountains, which you'll hear commencing with great gentleness in the second measure. Wind players are greatly fond of the Second Symphony. There's a greater transparency in its orchestration than in the other three symphonies of Brahms, and that lightness of touch allows us to play with less physical effort. The opening movement closes with one of the really great moments for the horn. It's quite an extended solo, and it requires good lung capacity and intelligent breath control. There's a moment near its conclusion where the solo horn player usually passes off a measure to his or her assistant to allow the phrase to continue without a disrupting but necessary breath.
For some years in the early 20th century, a few conductors argued that the Second Symphony of Brahms was, in fact, a tragic work. This rather odd interpretation stems from the discovery of some letters that Brahms wrote in advance of the publication of the symphony. And in one, he says, The new symphony is so melancholy that you can't stand it. I've never written anything so sad, so minorish. The score must appear with a black border. Of course, Brahms was only being playful with his correspondence, and the remarks were meant to be a joke. But if there is indeed some darkness in this symphony, it can be found in the second movement, the Adagio non troppo. For me, the big dramatic moments in this second movement are somewhat akin to the storm scene in Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. But in both works, the storm is followed by sunshine, here in the deep hue of B major. Well, a movement that ends like this is ultimately optimistic in its viewpoint. The third movement, Allegretto Grazioso, begins as a gentle dance in 3-4, with a naive melody in the first oboe. But the interest heightens when the concluding measures of this idea are transformed into a clever scherzo with a curious first-beat accent. That dance rhythm it flows easily into a broader three-quarter theme and makes an easy transition back to the oboe idea again. There is, therefore, an endearing and quixotic alternation between calm and agitated states that's a bit breathless at times but ultimately youthful in spirit I think ultimately very reassuring Finally, the last movement, Allegro Conspirato, is that life-affirming experience that I spoke of a few minutes ago. 
The movement begins with an unadorned theme played very quietly in the strings, repeated with a slightly denser orchestration before exploding in a subito forte and the exuberance blazes like a midday sun. opening eventually returns in a recapitulation and the orchestra must really concentrate to follow Brahms' implicit instruction to play sotto voce. The terms sotto voce and mezzo voce are vocal instruction, but we find them on occasion in Brahms. The literal translations are under the voice or subdued and medium or half voice, where intensity is increased by means of reducing volume. Well, it shouldn't be forgotten that Brahms wrote wonderfully for the voice, While not an opera composer, his choral works, and above all his large canon of art songs, places him, along with Schumann, Wolf, and Faure, as one of the great composers for the human voice. Had Brahms added a choir to the conclusion of this symphony, it wouldn't have been out of place. It's beyond exuberance. It's just pure joy. Life somehow grasped, and through the alchemy of composition, turned into a golden symphonic fireworks display. If you don't get goosebumps, and if your heart rate doesn't elevate with this music, well, what can I say?
The National Arts Center Orchestra performance of the Second Symphony is paired with a performance of Mozart's Piano Concerto Number no. 17 with soloist Emanuel Axe. Well, I'd be pretty remiss in allowing this Brahms-focused Nacocast to conclude without speaking about this exceptional artist. Manny Axe, with Euphim Brofman, Radu Lupu, Alfred Brendel, and a couple of others, stand as the real royalty in the kingdom of contemporary piano playing. Emmanuel Axe is gracing the stage of the National Arts Centre several times in this opening two weeks of our season, along with Yo-Yo Ma, Gil Shaham, Natalie McMaster, and Pinka Zuckerman. Mr. Axe will perform in our 10th anniversary National Arts Centre Gala on September 27th. And the night before, he'll join Yo-Yo Ma for a solo recital. This is all an incredible two weeks of great artistry and great music. It's an exciting start to our 0607 season. And there's so much to anticipate in the months ahead. Well, I hope you'll join me every couple of weeks for our NACOcast conversations about music and orchestral life. In the next few months, we'll have features on everything from the life of the orchestral tuba player to the daily agony of oboe reed making, a feature on Bartok on the 50th anniversary of the Hungarian uprising of 1956, conversations with Pinka Zuckerman and musicians of the National Arts Centre Orchestra. I hope you'll find a way to join us at Southam Hall, September 20th, 21st, for Mozart and Brahms with Pinka Zuckerman, Gerald Finley, and Euphine Brofman, and September 29th and 30th for Mozart and Brahms with Pinka Zuckerman and Emmanuel Axe. And I'll see those of you lucky enough to have secured tickets months ago for our gala on September 27th and the Axe Ma recital on September 26th. I wish you all a great couple of weeks of concerts, and I hope you'll join me for our next NACOcast on October 4th. Until then, this is Christopher Millard for the National Arts Centre. Send us your comments and questions. You can reach us by sending an email to nacocast at gmail.com. We always look forward to hearing from you. Don't forget, you can subscribe to this and other NAC podcasts by visiting nac.ca slash podcasts. There you'll find our past episodes, subscription links, and instructions on how to subscribe. You can also easily find us as a free subscription in the podcast section of the iTunes Music Store. Just search on NACOcast. 